Warning, the Catholic Man Show contains high levels of manliness. It's simple, really. You either want to grow in virtue and holiness, or you want to be a sissy, whiny baby. If you choose to move forward, grab your whiskey glass, because the Catholic Man Show is starting right now. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. Even if it's a coffee mug. No matter what it is, just raise your glass. Cheers to Jesus. I have some good news and bad news for all of the listeners uh, today. We'll start with the bad news to end on a high note. Uh, Bad news is David Niles is not here with us. He's on his uh, three-month-long vacation that he takes in the summertime. Uh, so he is no, he's not here with us today. It's not really three months, but we always give him a hard time for how long he takes a vacation. We, good news is we do have Juan Posada back in studio. Juan is back. He's, uh, he was in Colombia for a while. He had like a lot of like work things that he was dealing with. Uh, he is back. He looks great. All looks, all looks well. He's drinking some good coffee. It's good to have him back in studio. And then we also have a good friend of mine that uh, we've talked about him a lot, and I've spoken about his name the wrong way for uh, a good year now, a good solid year. Uh, but it's great to have you uh, here, Dr. Kent Lesnowski. Very Lesnowski, very fast. That way, hopefully, I say it uh, say it right. Nailed it. Uh, you are the author of Vocations to Virtue, uh, another book also that you just recently wrote with your wife on uh, thirty. 30 Married Couples. What, what, what? Yeah, 30 Days with the Married Saints. 30 Days with Married Saints. Um, also a professor at uh, Wyoming Catholic College, uh, a college that I am very interested in, uh, even though that I'm not going to school, but I do have boys that will be going to school sometime in the future. Can you give us like an under, like what is unique about Wyoming Catholic College? Sure. <clears throat> um, it's really the, the approach is to get the great books uh, married with the great outdoors, right? It's an attempt to have students learn about the true, the good, and the beautiful, not from secondary sources, but from direct encounter, right? And that means um, meeting things face-to-face that are difficult, uh, not only intellectually, but physically and spiritually. So, you know, when the freshmen show up, they show up a month before school starts, and we chuck them out into the wilderness for a 21-day trip, now, 21 days, you're going to discover some weakness. You're going to discover yeah. some challenge. You're going to have to work through some conflict. Uh, it's, it's beautiful what happens for these freshmen. When they come back, they're just different people. Um, and, you know, so the leaders train them for two weeks in how to survive on their own. And then they leave the freshmen for a whole week. And they have different objectives they have to accomplish and places they have to get to for that final week of independent travel. So it's a really wonderful introduction. Um, so they come back and then they're ready to jump into the classroom, right? Start doing the philosophic mode of education. And we have a seminar style of reading the great books together. Uh, and after class, you know, if they're sophomores, they go out and ride some horses as yet another one of their classes. And, um, you know, they, they worship together and live together and hopefully become holy men and women together through it all. This sounds very much like a John Senior-esque style of, of learning. Yeah, very much. It's founded by... Uh, some of John Sr.'s disciples, and it really is sort of the grandchild of John Sr. and his IHP program. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about that, uh, his his books and, and just his... We've had his uh, godson on our on our podcast several times. Um, it, restoration of... Well, his negative project, I guess, is the death of Christian culture. Mm-hmm. His positive project, even though if you read it, it doesn't necessarily sound... <laughs> it doesn't necessarily resonate as a positive project, but uh, Restoration of Christian Culture. Yep. One of the books that I read and I said, I, I set it down and I said, well, I have to change my life, which very few books do that. Uh, but I set it down and said, okay, got to change my life. Uh, I will let you guys figure out what that could possibly be by you reading it. But uh, <laughs> Restoration of Christian Culture by John Sr., uh, one of my favorite quotes of his in that book is, uh, what is Christian culture? It is essentially the mass. 
the mass and everything that goes around to make it possible. Right. In fact, that very reading is the first reading the freshmen do in a theology class. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's just so much that we could learn from John Sr. Uh, in today's world. Now, uh, okay, so recently, and when I say recently, within the last year, uh, our patrons, our book club for, for our patrons, we read one of your books, uh, Vocation, to, Vocation to Virtue. I did, had not met you before uh, when we read this, uh, but I saw it, it published, and it seemed very interesting to me based on just kind of the first chapter. I kind of, I, I think it gave a pre, you know how a lot of times they give a preview of the book, you know, yep. and they may give you a little snippet of it. And so I started reading that little snippet, and uh it really grabbed my attention. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this book. I started reading it and I was like, this is a book that I need to read with other people. Uh, and so we, we did it as a, as a book club book. But the reason why it grabbed my attention was because you were, you were marrying some ideas between what the monastic life was like and what the married life was like and how we can like learn from one another, uh, the things that we can, pull from the monastic life into the, the, the married life. Um, obviously all according to your state in life, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. some things can be emulated, but some things can just be admired. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so maybe give a, a brief rundown of like what, what the, what your goal was with the book. And then like, I'd like to maybe jump into it a little bit and yeah. like kind of pick your brain on it. And then hopefully it would give uh, our listeners the opportunity to maybe go pick it up and, and read it in a group setting as well. Sure. So I, you know, the real genesis of this was my own, um, you know, education in grad school and my own life as a a young married person. I started, uh, you know, reading some of the church documents, Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, you know, where it talks about the universal vocation to Christian perfection. And I thought, does the church really mean that? And, And if the church really means that everyone in their state of life is actually called to, to holiness. Um, and if the church is really interpreting, you know, Matt, the gospel where Jesus says, be ye perfect as the father is perfect. Um, what is it? What do we have to do differently about marriage? What, what if we took the holiness of marriage as seriously down in the nitty gritty as someone like Benedict takes his, his community's rule of life, his community's holiness. Um, how come married people aren't, aren't being as intentional? How come I'm not being as intentional about how to grow in holiness in the nuts and bolts of things as someone like Benedict, right? So there was this kind of revelation that, well, if the church means this, if I mean it, I'm going to have to do something different. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I thought to myself, well, I can't just, you know, do the monastic thing. I'm married. Um, but is there something universal to poverty, chastity, and obedience? Is there something universal about a rule of life? And when you look at what's going on in uh, those church documents, Lumen Gentium, and in the gospel, and, and even in the monastic life, you see that what the church is really calling us to is an imitation of Christ. And the, <clears throat> the chief virtues of Christ are his poverty. Right? Look at Philippians. He became poor that we might become rich, right? Though he possessed everything, even the Godhead, he gave everything up. Um, and chastity, right? Christ lived a celibate life, was not married. Obedience, how many times in the Gospels do you hear Jesus saying, I came to do the will of the Father? I came to do the will of the Father, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even the, in the garden, not my will, but yours. So <clears throat> Christ is the poor, chaste, and obedient one. So if we're all in, imitating Christ, even spouses have to, in their way of life, find a way to bring those virtues to life uh, in their own daily, daily way of living. Now, we, we call those, those, <clears throat> th- those three virtues that you're talking about, poverty, chastity, and obedience, we call them evangelical virtues, yeah. right? Why, why do we call them that? Because they relate to the gospel, and, and they relate to the way Christ lived his own life. And so when we call something evangelical, we don't mean that they're Protestant necessarily. We don't mean that they're just for missionary work. Uh, right. We mean that they emerge from the good news, the right. gospel, the way of Christ. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, that's a good distinction. So yeah. So I, I agree. I think that whenever you're talking about poverty, chap, chassis, obedience, a lot of times in in modern man's thought process, they they get married to run away from those things. Yeah. You might. I mean, yeah. like they think like I, I I'm not like I don't want to be a Carthusian. I don't want to be a Benedictine. I don't want to be a Dominican. So I'm going to go 
I'm going to go the other way and I'm going to get married. <laughs> yeah, because now I have the sex license, right? right. I'm married. I can do whatever. Right. Uh, I can own I can own the fancy cars and the nice house. And, right. um, and I get to do whatever I want because I'm the parent. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, now what, what, why, is that, why is that thought process not, not right? Well, it's, it's wrongheaded because the Christian life simply is a life of detachment. Uh, and the Christian life is simply one of self-possession so that I can, well, let me say it this way. If marriage really is about giving myself to another person, how can I give what I don't have, mm-hmm. right? And so if I don't have chastity, all of my sexual intimacy with my wife really isn't a self-gift, right? It's just scratching some kind of itch. And, and that's, uh, that's problematic, right? So if we want sure. marriage to really be a self-gift, we have to possess ourselves so we can give ourselves away. Obedience. Um, Was that faithfully, fruitfully, and fully? Yeah, yeah. Paul VI and Humanae Vitae really um, says that the marital love is free, faithful, fruitful, and total. And then John Paul II in Theology of the Body continues to unpack those four Mm-hmm. Those four characteristics. Um, yeah. And then for obedience, like, boy, if we're running from that virtue, we're going to have, we're going to have a big problem. Um, you know, holiness is to do the will of the father. Um, if it was that for Christ, then it needs to be that for me, whether I'm married or not, mm-hmm. you know, um, just a, a little anecdote about that. My, my wife was asking one of our daughters what she wanted, what she thought God was calling her to be when she grew up. Mm-hmm. And she says, I think I want to be a mom. And she says, oh, why? Because then I can eat whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Hey, as soon as I become an adult dad, I'm having as much candy as I want. Yep. 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 Heard that many of times. <sighs> One, it is great to have you back here on the Catholic Man Show. Uh, go check us out, thecatholicmanshow.com. Uh, camp out is coming up. We'll be right back. Wouldn't it be nice right after you get up and you say your prayers in the morning, you can check your phone and get caught up on all things that are happening in the Catholic world. That's exactly what GetTheLoop.com does. Go to GetTheLoop.com. Make sure you let them know that we sent you. It's a really easy way to help support the Catholic Man Show because the more people we send to GetTheLoop.com for a free email, it's the only email that Dave ever reads. But by signing up for their email, you're also supporting us because they're supporting our show. This episode is brought to you by GetTheLoop.com. Again, it's the place to go to get daily emails that recap all the big issues from a Catholic perspective. Go to GetTheLoop.com. Make sure you tell them the Catholic Man Show sent you. Cheers. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Adam Minahan here, talking about vocation to virtue, talking about marriage, really, uh, talking about uh, the, the monastic life as well, and the relationship, evangelical virtues, poverty, chastity, obedience. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Kent Lesnowski, and I will try my best to say <laughs> that correctly by the end of this episode, but I cannot guarantee it. Okay. Um, you just own it, and it'll come out and just, right. Yeah, and just keep going with it. <laughs> Yeah, so we were talking uh, right before the break. We were talking about how poverty, chastity, obedience. Uh, sometimes in the modern world, we think, oh, we're running away from that, so to speak, while we by we're getting married. You know, we're not doing the monastic life, so we're going to get married. But you make a, 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 a good point that actually, um, if you don't live a marriage that is uh, full of these evangelical virtues, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up uh, for a tough grind in, the, in a married, uh, married life. Yeah, I mean, and um, if you go all the way back, it, the funny thing is none of this is new. So you go back all the way to like the fathers, uh, St. John Chrysostom, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. and his homilies on marriage, highly recommend that. Uh, solid reading for any man who wants to get fired up about, okay, this is what it means to be a Christian man in marriage. Go read some of those homilies and you'll get fired up. But um, what he says relative to poverty is that the word mine should be the first word banished from every marriage. Mm. Really interesting, right? Mm. So that um, <clears throat> that's you know he's talking more than just uh, you know shared bank accounts and and things like that. There's a sense in which the marriage itself is a common project, right? That both of us are engaged in a common narrative, a common story that both of us are co-writing with God, you know, as He leads us forward in His will, right? So the concept that I can reserve something of my life or something of this marriage over for me. Is is something that Saint John Chrysostom just says to married couples: Look, you got to get rid of that 
if you really want to have happiness and really want to follow the Lord, for example. Yeah, because the, like it, it's this interdependence that you're you're just still desiring almost mm-hmm. like like you know it, very oftentimes even with God right we have like God heal me of all these things except for this one sin that yes. I really really want you know exactly. this is my sin you know this is something that I really enjoy or take delight in mm-hmm. uh, very similar to the married life right like oh everything that I have is yours honey and everything mm-hmm. you have is mine except mm-hmm. for this one thing right. that I really really want to do or really really like. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's this one area in my life I'm going to seclude and not bring into the common project of growing in holiness. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times those things are actually sins that we hold, you know. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So that, like, that's interesting though, because uh, poverty, we're not necessarily talking about poverty in, in, in a monetary f- sense. You know, I think the most, at the philosophic level, we start with that. But at the end of the day, if you don't go in the material monetary sense, I think we're also missing something. So okay. I, I challenge folks to, along with, again, the tradition of the church has always been to suggest people take up voluntary poverty in some way. Okay, now material poverty in a deep way is is not good. Mm-hmm. But for those who have everything they need, um, to help with their sense of detachment, they should choose something to do without or choose something, find a way to put yourself in relationship of need with other people and find a way to help folks who are actually in need. So that takes a structural decision. Maybe it means you decide, um, you know what, I'm going to co-own a snowblower with my neighbor. Or um, in my case, the weirdest thing, I was talking to my friend and I said, hey, you know what, I'm thinking of buying a truck because you know I just have so many, I got to take stuff to the dump and I, I need to have a, a thing for construction work and whatever. And he says, why would you buy a truck? I have a truck. Just use mine. And, and I'm thinking, you know, people say that, but do you really mean it? And in fact, right. he does mean it. So like, I'll call him on a Saturday. Hey, can I, can I use your truck today? He's like, sure, of course, man, whatever. And I just walk down the street, get his truck and use it. Now, I don't have a truck to pay him back with, but I pay him back in other ways, right? Asymmetrically. Mm-hmm. Watch his kids, uh, you know, help him with projects, whatever it is. So by choosing to not have a truck... Actually, put myself in a position of dependence on someone else, hmm. thus realizing that the truth of my being is that I am poor. I don't have everything I need. Everything is a gift, mm-hmm. and if I don't make an attention, <clears throat> an intentional step to remind myself that I that everything is a gift, I'll probably start thinking I I earned everything and I deserve everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is what draws you out of yourself, right? Yeah. The dependence of somebody else says like, okay, it's no longer independence. I don't have to rely on me, myself, and I, but mm-hmm. I, I have to re- rely on uh, other people and also God. Yeah, another way you can see this is like, you know, babysitting co-ops, you know, families can get together and watch mm-hmm. each other's kids and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. put each other in these real relationships of dependence, even living intergenerationally, right, with your in-laws or whatever. Um, they're going to need you when they get older and you can set up some of those relationships um, of mutual care earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so but then chastity, sometimes that, uh, I mean, yeah. let, let, let's go, I guess, we'll, <laughs> let, let's go through each one, like yeah. kind of dissect each one sure. real quick, and then we'll talk about like why this is different than, than what maybe the church has been saying in the past, or, or like recently, you yeah. know, like ha- this isn't the language in which the, the church is used. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I... You know, the, the end of your book, you're, you're, the last chapter of your book, you really talk about some really concrete, practical ways of how to live out the marriage, marriage life. So I want to make sure to get to that, too. Sure. I'm saying all this to help you guys remind me, because I'll, <laughs> I'll go down rabbit holes. And uh, But so, yeah, so, like, chastity is something that's interesting uh, in the married life as well, because we're all actually called to be chaste. Yeah. And so, now, that's the difference between chastity and celibacy. Exactly. Uh, is, is different. Why don't we flesh that out? Sure. So, Pun you know. intended. <laughs> Love it. Um, So chastity, you know, Thomas Aquinas is going to define this as the virtue of temperance when applied to um, uh, the physical pleasures of of sexual intimacy. The church, however, in the catechism has come up with a broader definition of this. They've said it's sexual self-possession. Basically, it's the integration of your sexuality into the whole of your life. And that's a pretty good way of of understanding what it is that, that takes it out of the simply out of the the concept of temperance alone and just uh, makes it a more holistic definition. But so chastity, again, sexual self-possession, the proper integration of sexuality into one's whole life. For for a vowed religious person, that's going to mean never being 
sexually available for any one person because the whole of my life is available to the entire world. And so I don't have the, I can't make the exclusive intimate gift of my whole self, including my body in a sexual way uh, to one person, again, because I'm making myself radically available for the whole world. In marriage, um, the, the relationship is a radical availability for one person. And because it's it's radical gift of self to one person, it can include that two-in-one flesh union that will then order the couple out toward procreation and toward a, an evangelical sense in their marriage. So chastity in marriage <clears throat> involves that possession of self and gift of self to the other. I think one of the issues that we run into in Catholic marriage <clears throat> is when folks equate chastity with NFP. Okay. Right? And yeah. so folks think, well, as long as I'm not using contraception... Um, I'm being chased. I'm being chased. And I think, unfortunately, that's just not the case. You know, it's all too easy to objectify one's spouse, uh, even even when a person is not using contraception. And, and NFP, unfortunately you know, can turn into a kind of mechanized, um, you know, effort that that in some ways kind of feels like contraception uh, for folks. And even if it's not, you know, intrinsically evil, it can be done with a, with a wrong intention and a contraceptive mentality. And so <clears throat> it might not actually represent, might not actually represent the chaste gift of self to another person, right? So I think we need to make sure we're thinking about chastity, um, more richly than simply not using contraception. Mm-hmm. You know, how are we treating each other um, as bodily? And, you know, chastity, with the way you treat your your wife uh, throughout the day, right? Do you reverence her? Do you reverence her body um, throughout the whole day, right? Are you, I do. I bow every time I see her. There you go. Exactly, mm-hmm. right? Are we groveling, <laughs> <laughs> um, crawling up? So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you can express, you know, you express reverence for a person's body by, um, you know, giving them a back rub, maybe based on what's happening, you know, that's the better way of giving yourself as a bodily person to your wife than by asking her if she's interested in sexual intimacy that day. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, f- I find that, uh, uh, oh man, you had the line in here and I, I should have uh, linked it up, but that when it's talking about the holy couples um, of Mary and Joseph, oh yeah, right here. Yeah. Mary and Joseph testify that intercourse of the mind is more intimate than that of the body. Hmm? Now, to the modern man's ears, that does not make sense. Um, how, like, what do you, how, how does that play in relationship to chastity? And how does that play, like, what does that really mean? Yeah, I think what it means is that, um, again, if you're, the body and soul are united, right, in the one human person. Mm-hmm. And so, the fact that human flesh can unite and and create another human person is is interesting. It's amazing, but unless that physical the, my union, poetic knowledge of this is means like it is it yeah, is interesting yeah, and poetic, very amazing <laughs> from yes. a direct direct encounter with that. Yeah. Um, but unless that union of the body is you is also animated by a union of spirit and mind. It's not even fully human, let alone uh, let alone Christian. And so Augustine is saying that um, Mary and Joseph made a gift of themselves to each other more profound in their celibacy because they shared the same perfect will to obey the Father. They're, they shared the same perfect will to raise Christ and accept Him in the in their home. Um, and rather than simply sharing the same exchange of a bodily action, right? Yeah, so when you increase and grow in your spiritual life, the lower goods seem to not be as uh, enticing than the higher goods. Exactly. So a moment of shared prayer might actually become more profound for you as a couple than simply the physical uh, embrace. We'll be right back. We are going to the Holy Land, and we want you to come with us. Next year, during the Easter octave, 
from April 3rd to the 14th, 2024, for 12 days, we will be in the Holy Land. And we would love for you and your wife and your family to come with us. We're only going to take one bus. A lot of pilgrimages take multiple buses, but we want this to be an intimate uh, opportunity for us to pray together, to eat together, to drink together, to have fun, but also to grow closer to our Lord. So check out selectinternationaltours.com slash catholicmanshow. Sign up today. Again, we're only going to take one bus, so it will fill up. Selectinternationaltours.com slash catholicmanshow. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to the Catholic Command Show. Here with Dr. Kent Lesnowski. Boom. Hit it. Uh, join us on Patreon.com. We just are we're releasing um, a whole class for Patreon, for our patrons, uh, with Carlo Broussard, a Catholic Answers nice. Apologist. He's going through what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say on the Eucharist. Mm. And he's reading... Uh, uh, he's reading it as we've talked about on the show before. We, like we like to read w- what Aquinas actually says first, so we don't get confused. That's right. And then we go back to like, okay, what's the what's the objection, and then what's his mm-hmm. reply? Objection, mm-hmm. reply. So that way, you're it just orders itself. I think in a way for for me to understand it. So better. you start with the res- with, uh, with the respondio. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that way, I understand because I don't want to get like I, I'm I'm not a smart guy. Like so, I don't want to get confused. <laughs> I'll, I'll read I'll read the objection sure. first and be like. Yeah, that sounds like a great uh-huh, objection. Okay, you know, like I agree, and then, mm-hmm. and then you read his response, and you're like, "Oh, oh wait, wait no, yeah. I built I built this foundation on sand." <laughs> okay, uh, so anyway, so he's going. What he's going through is he's going through each one of those, and uh, there's uh, ten questions, I believe, uh, and then he's giving uh, commentary on each one. So I think there's fourteen classes one uh, on this. So if you're looking to up your game during this Eucharistic revival and understanding the love, you can't. Uh, love something mm-hmm. that you do not know. So the more you know something, the more you can love something. So if you're looking to up your game and love of Christ, the Eucharistic Christ, this is an opportunity for you to do so. Patreon.com slash the Catholic Man Show. Okay. But we're talking about um, we're talking about marriage. We're talking about chastity, uh, the evangelical virtues, poverty, chastity, obedience. We're mm-hmm. on chastity right now. Um on the show, we talk a lot about living liturgically, right? And this is always fun, typically, because what we talk about is uh, being able to celebrate your baptism days and mm-hmm, uh, your mm-hmm. confirmation days and being able to, what, what's your saints' feast days? Let's bake cakes. Let's do a uh, procession. Uh, Juan does a great St. Michaelmas event every nice. year. Um, and uh, we do all these, you know, St. John's, right? After St. John's Day, after uh, Christmas, you know, mm-hmm. we're blessing the wine and mm-hmm. like all these fun things, typically. Yeah. Now, Ontologically, feasting is better than fasting. This is what we're going to be doing in heaven, right? We're going to be feasting on the lamb, yep. but we're not in heaven yet. We are here on earth, and uh, which requires us to fast as well. Now, normally when men talk about fasting, we talk about, yeah, let's have a bread and water fast for a day, or uh, you know, let's give up a meal for a specific intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, all good things, all things that I think we should be doing. We should be practicing, mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. having an ascetic lifestyle of, of denying ourselves. Um, what are some other ways, maybe, in which we could we could live an ascetic lifestyle? Oh yeah, and <clears throat> here's a it's kind of a more uncomfortable one to talk about, and one that the church has shied away from uh, after the Second Vatican Council, and it's really to start thinking in terms of our sexual intimacy when it comes to fasting. Um, it really has been the tradition of the church uh, for the <clears throat> again until the mid 20th century, basically to assume. Simply not even not even really to talk about it much or have to do a lot of selling on it, but just assume that during times of penitential seasons, couples would be uh, restricting and restraining uh, their sexual intimacy. And <clears throat> a lot of folks, you know, are hesitant to even talk about that because there's been this shift um, of towards sort of a celebration of the goodness of of sexuality, and the church has wanted to shed this reputation of being anti-sex, and of course. If they start asking folks to to think about giving it up as a penance or for a particular intention, then <clears throat> they're going to be seen as anti-sex. Well, um, you know, I can tell you all the celebration of married love and sexuality, and and all the silence about 
penance hasn't really done much to change the church's reputation, right? Mm-hmm. If you go out there, folks are still going to say, look, the church is anti-sex, no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. So I think we just need to start being honest again about what the church tradition has been. And that, you know, you look, you just go back to scripture and look at 1 Corinthians 7. The only place <clears throat> St. Saint Paul uh, talks about, you know, a couple may decide to withhold, right, sexual intimacy from each other. The only reason he gives he doesn't talk about contraception. He doesn't talk about uh, wanting to avoid a child. The only reason he gives is he says that couples may withhold from each other if mutually agreed upon for a time for the purpose of prayer. Hmm. That's what's in scripture, right? Is that you might take a break from sexual intimacy again for the purpose of growing in prayer. So somehow if we're really pursuing chastity, we have to see how does this sexual intimacy relate to the liturgical life? How does it relate to our prayer? Mm. Right. Um, and so a couple may choose for Lent, you know, or something to, to maybe give, give some of that up. Right. Uh, or uh, even for a special intention to give some of that up. And again, it's not because it's evil. You don't give right. up evil things. Right. You just stop yeah. sinning, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, this makes sense, right? The, the reason why the priesthood is so good is that it's giving up a good. Exactly. For, for a better good, you yep. know, for a higher good, right? Mm-hmm. For To be, a, like you, you mentioned earlier, like to be available wholly to everyone, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, marriage and the, the, the intimacy of, of marriage is a, is a, is a good. Um, and so to give up a good... Um, for a time being. Now, I think that also would require a lot of communication on the marriage front right? uh, with this, and also some um, spiritual maturity, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, before you actually kind of just jump into things, right? So, like, when I first started taking my faith seriously, um, I was not going to do a, like, I tried to, like, oh, I'm going to do, like, maybe a bread and water fast, all of Lent, you know, and I was, like, you know, trying to, like, like really just go gun-ho about Mm -hmm. all this. Well, Mm -hmm. I'm setting myself up for failure there. Yeah, uh, because I have not trained those uh, muscles, so to speak. I have not, I have not developed that virtue yet. Right. Um, and so th- there's there's a caution there. In fact, I think a lot of the church fathers actually talk about like the slow and steady pace mm-hmm. of, of of living the virtuous life, right? Mm-hmm. And, of getting there. <clears throat> um, so I think there is there had there needs to be probably like I said communication within the husband and wife, but then mm-hmm. also some spiritual maturity has to be there, I think. Do, would you agree with that or disagree? Yeah, and I think that a couple... Feel free should, to push back if, they, if you don't think that's true. I mean, I think a couple should should pray about whether this is something they want to do, but that they should feel encouraged by the fact that the church has just always assumed this is something men and women would do and, and say like, okay, why is that the case? And why am I hesitant about this? You know, is it because I actually haven't given my sexual self. I haven't given myself over to God. I have, this is something I keep retaining as like, I can hermetically seal off my sexuality from my walk with Christ, right? Because as long as I'm not using contraception, I'm doing it right. Like maybe that's not the case. Maybe I need to hand this over to God, right? And be willing to set it down or at least partially, right? It's not even like you would go to total abstinence or something, right? Right. But you could step it back again for a time. And then on that Maybe on that occasion where you would have been intimate, you could decide, okay, today we're going to do an extra devotion at that time together and <clears throat> use this as a time for extra prayer, right? Not So, you know. I would be willing to bet if you did this, the times in which you, you came together as husband and wife are even better. Yeah. Yeah, that, that seems to be intuitively... Obvious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, cause this is like the people who, who practice abstinence in some, in mm-hmm. some, uh, you know, for NFP or for NFP yeah. For, yeah, like have a better sex life. Yep. That's what they'll tell you. And, and that's just the sociological data, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's very a counter, uh, thought process, I think to a lot of modern, but it makes, uh, it makes sense liturgically, mm-hmm. uh, that there are days in which we're fasting. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, if, as long as we're talking about manhood here, like, the tradition of the church has also been, again, until until the 60s, um, uh, well, not really 60s, until earlier in the 20th century, the Eucharistic fast was really supposed to be um, from the evening before, right? Really a full 12 hours um, before you receive Eucharist, you're supposed to be fasting. And that would include things like <clears throat> sexual intimacy as well. And mm. so, um, so that got changed when the introduction of vigil masses on Saturdays got introduced. Because how are you supposed to fast for 12 hours? Well, how can you expect canonically people to fast for 12 hours before a 5 p.m. mass, right? right. So that's it's where the church you. cut this yeah. back to just one hour. 
um, three hours, then one hour. And so the church like has been walking back some of these regulations because they don't want to put too much weight on people. But what if as a man, you said, you know what? I'm going to wrap, I'm going to step that up. I am going to fast for a full 12 hours before I receive the Lord. I am going to consider like, what does it mean to, to involve my sexuality within that kind of a thing as well? Yeah, I mean, that is, yeah, that, uh, uh, a new thought process. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of challenging for yeah. sure, yeah. But okay, so now, let's, 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 <clears throat> wait, anything else on chastity you want, you want to touch on? I think just as a final word to say that like chastity really means that I have the power to, to say and live the truth that my body is at the service of the people around me. Right, and that I have promised and vowed to make my body in its wholeness at the service of those around me. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, obedience—the uh, last uh, evangelical virtue that we're talking about—is um, one that also I think gets misconstrued or misplaced, even with Ephesians five and all this stuff. Um, I don't think that the understanding of the weight of th- that one takes when yeah. w- when there's obedience that's involved, right? Um, so. Ephesians 5, you know, we don't understand, like, you know, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's very easy to, to remember the first part yeah. until, <laughs> until you look at that, the crucifix and realize uh, how Christ loved the church. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, part of the issue is that, um, look, St. Paul says, men love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's going to mean sacrificial. It's going to mean dying for your spouse. And the next part, of course, is, um, you know, women be subject to your husbands. Neither of those things is intuitive. Neither of those things is comfortable. But yet the Lord is commanding us to do this. So men are being commanded to lead. <clears throat> Women are being commanded to receive that leadership. Um, but it's, it's not something we like. It's not something that's comfortable. It's not something that's popular. I think the reason that, that St. Paul is giving this advice is not because he's a misogynist stuck in an early, early, uh, early situation that just doesn't know better. It's because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to help Christians walk back the fall. Like, let's look at what Adam did. Um, his problem was he didn't leave. He didn't lead Eve. Right. And when he had the chance to help her, he threw her under the bus. Right. He blamed God. And what did Eve? He's the do? woman you put. Yeah, the woman you put here with me. Yeah. Right. Um, and then what did Eve do? Well, she brought evil rather than good under her husband, and she did not follow the instruction that he gave her directly from God. So she didn't follow. He didn't lead. St. Paul's trying to help us walk that back. All right, we'll, we'll keep talking about this on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. Listen, I know this is going to be a tough sell for you guys, but humor me here. This October, hundreds of Catholic men gathered together from around the world at Estes Park, Colorado. Beautiful Estes Park, Colorado in October. It's going to be gorgeous for a five-day adventure dedicated to helping everybody build a better prayer life, forming up virtue and a life beyond Exodus 90, and having brotherly fellowship, getting to know one another, most likely over a pint. Join us, exodus90.com slash the summit. We're going to be there. Dave and I, we're going to be giving a talk. We have a live Catholic Man Show episode there. Join us, exodus90.com slash summit. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Talking about uh, marriage, talking about evangelical virtues. If you're listening on the radio right now, uh, go check us out at thecatholicmanshow.com. We have over 350 some odd episodes, uh, a lot of bunch of a lot of different guests. Uh, we had Juan, Juan. Do you remember we had Mario Lopez on this show? I thought about that the other day. I was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot we had that guy on the show. I saw him in a little bit yeah, that's what I did too. I saw like he was. Promoting his uh, promoting the faith on online not too long ago. I was like, I forgot we even had him on the show. Wow. Anyway, long time ago. Uh, so we're talking about obedience here uh, in context of marriage. So recently, uh, this is something new to our listeners, is that uh, the Minahan kids have uh, were no longer homeschooling a couple of them full time. I think as a parent, everybody homeschools. Mm-hmm. We're all homeschooling. Because uh, the catechism talks about like, that we're the primary educators of our children. Mm-hmm. However, some of that homeschooling involves taking your kids to a school. Um, so we recently uh, enrolled our kids into the classical school here in, in the Diocese of Tulsa. And one of the things that we're learning is that, you know, with school is, is new routines, new uh, yep. uh, uh, regiments of, 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 of the day. 
uh, including uniforms. Ah. Right? So uniforms is, is very interesting. Um, however, there is... I bring all this up because now what happens is is that uh, the kids get up, they already know what they're wearing for the day. Yeah, simplifies it. Right, it yeah. simplifies it. And so there's this interesting aspect of them getting up immediately, putting on their clothes, and coming downstairs is almost like this freedom that they have. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, of, of Now they don't have to think about it. Now, it yep. used to be a pretty big deal for for my my daughter to like figure out what she was going to be wearing for yep. the day because, yep. you know, what skirt with what... A shirt and mm-hmm. I, I, how many layers can I put on and it's still acceptable, you know, yep. uh, to, to yep. go outside. Now though, uh, it, there's no there's no fight, there's no there's no uh, friction there. It is they understand, boom, and they go down. Now, now it's interesting. I, I bring that up only because to say like there's this uh, obedience that they have of now that they know what they're wearing, and then now there's a freedom there as well. Yep, uh, that they don't have to worry about like what it is that they can now move along and do other things. Yeah. Uh, that's the beautiful paradox, I think, of uh, obedience and the Christian understanding of what obedience is. It's not a demeaning, it's not a um, you know, rub your nose in something mm-hmm. uh, following blindly or anything <laughs> like that, but it is, a, it is a freedom that you have to think about, hopefully, higher goods. Yeah. Yeah, so obedience to, to a rule can be infantilizing if you have not intentionally subjected yourself to this thing. If, and if it doesn't actually serve your good, but serves the good of the one whom, who you're obeying only, right? And so that would be a kind of slavish obedience that, that is problematic. Um, but a free obedience is a will uh, you've submitted yourself to freely, and it really serves your good rather than simply the good of some master, right? Some extrinsic master. And so obedience allows you to consecrate every moment, right? You have the freedom of knowing I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Therefore, I'm doing what I've, what I've said I'm gonna do. And therefore it's a gift to God, right? I'm, I, it is bath night. And by, by giving my child a bath right now, after dinner, I am worshiping God because that's the thing I said I was gonna do every Wednesday evening, right? And so it becomes a prayer habitually and regularly and easily. You don't have to somehow muscle your way like, oh, I'm going to make this a prayer, God, just by having done what you said you were going to do, right? Right there, you've consecrated that time to God. It's totally freeing. Yeah. Now, so how, how do we relate that to, to, the, to the marriage life? Mm-hmm. In the married life, again, we have to, as men especially, we have to start owning this. We have to start owning the structure of our lives. We have to um, sit down and say, how am I going to build my life around Christ as the center of gravity? How am I going to do that? Well, one way is to create a kind of rule of life for your own family, right? Take a look if you're interested. Just go go crack open Benedict's rule of life and read how intentional he is about every second, every moment of the day, mm-hmm. right? Having something that's been ordered toward God. And sit down with your wife, pray it out, talk it out. Think, how do we, what do, how do we want to structure this day? What do, what do we want our breakfast to be like? What do we want lunch to be like? What do we want it to be like when you get home? What do we want to do for dinner? Where is the prayer going to be built into this day, right? Where is the central pole of our life? Um, And just try something. Try creating a a rule of life for yourselves, and then try try being obedient to it. It's it's not set in stone. It's not the Constitution, Mm -hmm. right? You can shift this. You can change it. um, But the key is to be intentional about it, because you don't you don't get to heaven on accident, right? And there's no half saints. No, there's no half saints. (laughs) It's either all or nothing. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and order, like, uh, ordered life yields uh, peace, right? Yes. You know, because peace is the tranquility of order, mm-hmm. I, I think is how Aquinas puts it. And mm-hmm. so um, if, you, if, you're, if you have a chaotic household, um, possibly, mm-hmm. and there's, there's not as much order as what there should be. That's right. You know, I often run into folks who say, you know what, you know what, Ken, I don't really, I'm spontaneous. I don't have a rule of life. I, I'm not into that. And I say, everybody has a rule of life. It's just a question of whether or not it's a good one, right? Mm. And so for the person who claims that they don't have a rule of life, I just tell them like, just take an assay, right? Write down what you did every day on the hour and see, you'll notice it is patterned. Even if you don't think it is, you tend to do the same kind of things. And if you're not intentionally thinking about it, they're probably not leading you anywhere good, Yeah. right? So we just have to own the fact that whether or not we know it, 
we have habits. Mm -hmm. We have a rule of life, so to speak. It's just a question of whether or not it's a good one. So what is the weight in which a a man has to carry necessarily when exercising this authority? Wow, I think the first piece, the first weight is that it's on me. It's on the man to be the primary example of sacrificial love and witness. So I have to say, I have to be the best at living um, this example better than, than anyone else. That's on me. And if, um, if, if my kids are going to learn anything, it's not just going to be from me um, telling them. It's going to be from what they see me doing, right? And then I can't really ask anyone to live up to something that I'm not willing to put myself under as well. Mm-hmm. So really the first piece of that weight is that I have to be a primary exemplar. And that's probably going to mean not only doing it right, but um, being honest and open where appropriate about, you know, how I've messed it up. So, um, and, and being willing to apologize not only to your wife, but to your kids about like, hey, yeah, you know what? I didn't put enough effort on making us get that rosary in. Sorry, guys, I missed that. You know, let's get it right tomorrow kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that exemplarity is good. But then the other piece is being willing to to be what feels like the bad guy sometimes. You know, if you read um, Samuel, you discover that Eli gets condemned because he didn't step in to stop his children from abusing their priestly role. He didn't do anything about it, right? He saw that they were abusing their role. He saw that they were sinning and he didn't stop it. And so men, it's not easy to be the bad guy, right? So to speak, it's not easy to, to step in and, and, and help your kids avoid evil, but we're going to be judged for whether or not <clears throat> we had the toughness to demand and to demand virtue, not only of ourselves, but of those we're responsible for. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think for me, just mentally, I, I think about that my desire here is out of love. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's out of like, I want you to be a holy person. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order for me to help you be a holy person, there has to be discipline yeah. involved. Yeah. And it's hard to make, it's hard to do that in love. Um, and to, to discipline from a place of peace is really the challenge uh, for men because we're so, we're, the natural desire, the natural move is to go to anger. Right. Anger is the natural response to injustice, right? right? Um, but, you know, St. Um, Saint Francis de Sales has said that he's never had a, he's never had a good response to dealing with a problem of discipline with, um, with anger uh, versus dealing with it with peace, you know? And I think that the way to do that really is separate, the, uh, is time, is separation yeah. of the act in which we have to discipline versus the actual discipline that carries itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily for the kid as much f- as for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that way I, I can go in there and articulate, here's, you know, you know ask questions. Why, why are you in trouble? Mm-hmm. I want to make sure you understand why are you in trouble? Mm-hmm. What should you have done? Mm-hmm. Okay, now this is why you're going to be getting in trouble. Yeah, this is what has to happen now. And uh, that's to help you move forward and, and actually do the right thing in the future. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we're talking. Uh, what else about obedience? Anything else you want to talk about obedience? Yeah, about? I think really, um, you know, rather than just talking about, you know, women subjecting themselves and men leading, there's, a, there's something really important about mutual obedience, you know, and, and the mutual obedience of the couple as a two-in-one flesh union to the will of God. Right, so I think first and foremost, couples are called to prayerfully, prudentially discern with each other what God's will is for their marriage, and that's going to mean having conversations in prayer and reading, um, and just silence before the Lord about what they feel like they're being called to do as a mission as a couple. Every every married couple has a, a distinct kind of mission, and so folks need to talk about what they think that mission is, and maybe even do something as silly sounding as like create a mission statement for your marriage, right? But that that's going to be discerned as something you feel, okay, we're being obedient to the will of God in our marriage. This is where we see God pointing us as a couple mm-hmm. and how we submit to God's will for our life together. Yeah, I think that, that totally makes sense. I mean, this is why I think we, we encourage to have a family patron saint, you know, so that it's one, mm-hmm. one saint in which we're all praying together. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, patron saints... Uh, you know, they're a patron of something for a reason. And so it's like, well, yeah. w- what's something that maybe our family struggles with or something mm-hmm. that, you know, we want help in mm-hmm. if we're all praying to that saint for that uh, virtue of some sort. Um, it yields, you know, uh, an, an orientation to, to the good. Mm-hmm.
Okay, so uh, we're out of time on, on Catholic Radio. Uh, shout out to all the Catholic Radio stations who have uh, li- been listening here on the Catholic Manager. Go to thecatholicmanager.com. We're going to continue this conversation because I want to talk just briefly about householding with God. Yeah. This is a, a term that I really thought was, uh, was capturing. So, Kit, thanks so much for hanging out with us. My pleasure. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. Okay. Um, what's wrong with Householding with God. Yeah, this is something that I wanted to uh, talk about a little bit. So yeah. maybe, because we talk about the domestic church on the on the show at least all the time. We like wrote a we wrote a small book about it. Um, no way. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but we unfortunately didn't talk about it with with the, with this terminology in terms of de- householding yeah yeah cuz I like I wish I would have wrote uh, you know read this a little bit before um but yeah on householding with god i think this is this is chapter 5 of your book um everyone's doing it householding with god yeah uh, um maybe explain what you mean by that yeah i think well what i'm after there is to say what's another place of consonance between consecrated religious life and marriage and the thing one of the things that draws them both together is they're really sharing in the communal ecclesial project of being a ho- being the household of God. And if you read John's gospel uh, in particular, you really see that this is a paradigm that, that John wants to use for helping us understand what it means to follow Christ is to actually live in the household of God, right? In my father's house, there are many mansions, there are many rooms, right? Let us occupy them together. Mm-hmm. And he's preparing, you know, uh, I'm going away to prepare a room for you. Um, you're born into the house of God uh, by water and spirit, right? And so this idea of what it means to be a Christian is to share in the the entire domestic project of being a son or daughter of God, right? And living in his household. And so that's something that draws, again, draws the consecrated religious life together with marriage. Consecrated religious life use all this language of domesticity, all this language of householding to make sense of itself. Well, that's intuitively what married people are, are using that language already. And so it draws folks together into one larger project, right? And so um, that's going to involve a lot of different things. Um, it's going to involve the principles of familiarity, right? Um, but because familiarity can tend to breed contempt. Yeah, complacency. Complacency as well. You have to hit the opposite pole of formality, right? And so within the household, there need to be, there's obviously going to be all of this deep familiarity and intimacy but there need to be spaces of formality, liturgical things, right? Things that say, look, at this time, this is what you do. And it's not just ad hoc. It's just not just ad lib, right? There's a sense of formality and reverence to the thing, right? So one of the ways that you could build that in is, um, and I remember you mentioned this to me the other day, like when your, your dad came home, immediately he's going to, to his wife and giving her a kiss. That's a kind of liturgical formality, mm-hmm. right, that he goes through that's formative for the house. It's not just a familiarity of like, hey, how's everybody doing, right? That's great too, but you need those things you're going to do just because they're structurally good and you want to live that out and be formed by that structure. Um, you can build this into your prayer too. For example, like, um, you know, we do a sort of modified version of louds in the morning after breakfast and each of the kids, based on what they're maturity level is have a different role. This is the thing you say, right? Someone says, Lord, open my lips. Mm-hmm. Maybe the, one of the younger kids says, Lord, open my lips. You know, one of the other ones does the glory be, right? Right. And so that's just the formality of it. Uh, we also have familiarity, right? You can say your intentions, mm-hmm. you know, ad lib, but you have this 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 mix. Another thing you do is, is, again, create jobs for kids. And again, like, look, you are the kid who always puts the forks out. That's your thing. So you're building the structure in to to mix familiarity with formality. Yeah, I really like that. Now, okay, so if you're householding with God, and it should there should be some familiarity with uh, what on Sundays, what they see on Sundays, mm-hmm, with what mm-hmm. they see in the home, right? They should comp like some reinforce each other in yep. in some way. That's right. Not necessarily like it would be awesome if if you know uh, at, at dinner time <laughs> you're ra- you're not you're not like raising up your your meal, you know, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, but there's 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 has to be some familiar familiarity there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which so what does that look like in the home? Right? How much does it? I think you even you you talk about the importance of uh, eating at the table. Yes. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, I think again, um, we come together 
at the Lord's table, right? Mm -hmm. Which like ontologically and, and first and foremost, the mass is, is a re-presentation of, of Cal Calvary, right? Of course, but it's also um, a re-presentation of the Last Supper. And so you, you come together there in a sort of prayerful uh, way and in, mm -hmm. in union with Christ. The table at the household should also be a place of coming together and a place of mutual gift and sacrifice. And so the way you, you work that out is by, I think, having a reverence for the table, having a way that it's isolated from the things of the workaday world. It's a place where uh, you're going to say no to cell phones, for example, right? Mm -hmm. It's a place where you're going to say yes to, we always start this with prayer. And, and frankly, if you're doing it, you could try you make sure to try and end it with prayer too, right? So it's framed by the presence of God. Um, what if at dinner, you know, everybody went around and said a blessing from the day, right? Or what if at dinner you read a piece of some pretty easy to digest spiritual, spiritual book or tried to work on memorizing a psalm or try, right? Mm -hmm. Just try and find ways to make it, make it around the Lord as a center of gravity. Also realizing that uh, the process of making dinner and serving dinner is a gift mm -hmm. uh, and can be incorporated into the life of Christ as well. Now, is that just for the sake of the community or just for the sake of the family or is there uh, an ulterior end? Well, so the the growth and holiness of the of the people in the family is the internal good of that practice. But if if it really is a Christian practice, it can't help but foster a kind of love that that goes beyond itself. And so the family from having this sacrosanct kind of approach to meal, a prayerful approach to meal is going to naturally build a love that goes beyond itself and tries to, you know, get hospi hospitality toward the rest of the world. You're going to want to invite people into this. Right. right? Uh, yeah. I, I guess I asked that because I, I have fallen into the trap as a dad, right? So you're, you're trying to teach your, all your kids, all these different things, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, my kids can memorize, they have all the books of the Bible memorized in order, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so some really cool things that you want to teach your kids, right? But it's not for the sake of just like teaching them. So that way you can bring people over and be like, okay, kids, go ahead, show off. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like show, show yeah, them how good yeah. we're doing, yes. right? Um, you, yes. can, you can, you can use your kids like to kind of almost prop, oh, prop yourself up as, that's as a big pride, a temptation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, so what I'm thinking of is more like, um, you, one way you could see this is like, you know, one thing I want to do is I want to offer the gift. So as a college professor, right, there's a lot of kids who, you know, they're away from home. And so when you offer hospitality to college students, there's a way in which you're giving them uh, another taste of family life that they might be missing, you know, mm -hmm. because they come from big Catholic families too. And so there's a way in which for us, that's the extra version of like, let's have some college kids over and let's just give them a nice experience, a nice evening, mm -hmm. right? Or Maybe, maybe the way a family sees this is like, we want to share the love of our meal with folks. So let's go once a month to a soup kitchen together as a family and provide a meal for someone else. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you could say, you know what we're going to do? There's this family that just had a baby. Let's put together a really cool meal for them. And as a family, let's bring it over to their house and just, you know, drop it on them mm -hmm. uh, like a, a, a bomb of grace, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I just feel like that sometimes... Uh, the the way your kids act, or uh, you know, is almost like a reflection of of like how you're parenting, right? You know, uh -huh. so I, I was telling you on the way over here, you know, you have all these things that you do with the family, and there's rituals, prayer, everybody, you have all these things set up, and then you invite somebody over, and you you're like, okay, guys, we're gonna do the thing that we do every single yep. day. This is the thing that we do, and yep. they look at you with this blank <laughs> stare, and like uh, like they're acting like you've never, they've never heard this yes. word before in their life. Yes. And then what you what happens is, is it's almost like you have this reflection, like you feel like it's a reflection on your fatherhood. Yep. Uh, and then I, I don't know. I think there's some something health, unhealthy thing that big time that can happen there. Yeah, I think what we need to remember is that the the life of uh, the life of the married folks and is one principally of mess and mistakes, and that the real rubber hits the ground with how am I going to, what am I going to do when things don't go right? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do when I say, all right, Johnny, it's your turn to, to start prayer. And he looks at you like, what do you mean? Like, I don't even oh, know what prayer yeah, is. Or, or when <laughs> you say, 
hey, uh, hey, could you pass the salt? And they're like, and, and they give you a rude look. Right. What are you going to do at that moment? Or you, know, you have a guest over and they're like, hey, can I get some water? Hey, Johnny, can you go grab a glass of water? And they're like, right? right. Like, yeah. So those are the moments that actually seem to be more like the essence of trying to live a Christian life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, for his part, talks a lot about Christian community. Now, he was, he was, a, he was a Lutheran, but um, his book, Life Together, is, is brilliant on this because he helps us get in the right expectations. He says, anyone who, who in, when trying to live community life, is looking for the bed of roses or for that group of people who are just always going to get it right and always think the same way, act the same way, that person doesn't really want community. That person wants a wish dream. That person is just full of pride. They're going to destroy community rather than make it. And so if we have folks over and someone spills the milk and then another kid is chastising the one who spilled the milk and then an argument starts and if that's what we should expect to happen. Right. Right. And just no matter how much, how good we're doing, that's just the stuff of living, trying to live a Christian life. So yeah, I, I have the same temptation of being like, well, my kids are, are a reflection of my own virtue. And yeah, it's because more often than not, I'm messing up. Right, right. <laughs> and that's just honest. It's just true. Yeah. Uh, okay, so maybe let, let, let's end here with uh, uh, one or two different um, practical steps in which to take. Uh, at the very end of the book, like you said, you, this is actually a great segue because you t- the end is called a construction site. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are, what are a couple things in which you think to be able to live be, do householding with God? I think just to kind of reiterate a couple things that we've already mentioned. First is to, as, as man and wife, own your mission. Really sit down and think through like, what are we doing? What does it mean to, for us to say we are living a vocation? Mm-hmm. Vocation is about being called by someone to something. What is it that we've been called to? And getting specific about that as a couple. Um, and so after you've done that, once you have that mission in place, you can start designing the nuts and bolts of your family around it to actually achieve it. Mm-hmm. So if your mission is, if you feel like your mission is, well, we really just, we love helping the poor. Okay, so how are you going to do that? What day are you going to do it? When? What's your group you're going to get involved in, right? And how are you going to train your family to be ready for that kind of thing? Well, or our mission is to homeschool. Okay, so when are you going to get up and do it? What curriculum are you going to buy? Like start, start thinking through it. It all has to be ordered toward the mission. You can't really start doing nuts and bolts until you have that mission in place. But once you have it in place, then then you should then you can start doing it. Um, also, I think another good thing is couples as as a couple say like, well, what's something we feel like we want to do without? What's so living mm. out poverty, right? What's one thing? And I'm not just talking about extras here. This isn't like, well, we'll go out to dinner one less time a month. Like, right. what's something that typically people think I need this? Um, let's choose one thing to try to do without. Just trying to work that in. And then chastity again. Um, how could we link our sexual intimacy to the liturgical life a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Try, and, try and find something with that. Obedience. Um, what's a way as a man that I can more sacrificially lead my wife? And then how can she, like what's one area where she feels like she wants to commit to um, being more subject, right? In the proper way as unto the Lord. And then how can we both be obedient to a rule of life that we put in place? Mm-hmm. So those would be some, some concrete steps that I think everyone should really take. Um, the, one of the easiest ways to start getting at that is pick up a spiritual book together and commit to, uh, commit to reading it together mm-hmm. and having it as a sort of basis for these conversations that you're going to have about mission and about rule of life and about poverty, chastity, obedience. Yeah, I mean, the books that come to mind for me is like The, uh, the Imitation of Christ, mm-hmm. um, uh, Intro to Devout Life. Yes. Uh, um, the, the Way. Yeah, uh, oh, The Way. The Way is Escriva. great. The Escriva is really, yeah. really great. And it, it's very easy to read. It's like little, he writes in memes almost. Yes, what I would do with that actually is say, look, as a couple, we're going to each just read, or the first thing we're doing in the morning is pick that book up, read the one sentence that he puts there mm-hmm. and commit to that as a resolution for the day. Right? Yeah, as a great. couple, right? Yeah. That's our resolution. That would be a really good way to get started on this. Um, also, I think Jacques Philippe is really helpful and readable for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, Searching for and Maintaining Peace is a great one to start with. Mm-hmm. It has It's sort of a, a, a digested version of Total Abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
to Christ. So that that's a good one to do as well. Yeah. Um, and then I, it would be, it would not be good for me to not at least bring up Peeper once, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that for, yeah. For me. So, I, I mean, there's a couple of books that I mean, obviously lead to the basic culture, but it, I, I really like his book uh, on festivity, uh, In Tune with the World, okay. the Theory on Festivity. So okay. that way it really helps you understand how to live out a Sunday. Yes. And sun, as living out a Sunday well. Yes. And I think that's a low hanging fruit for couples is say, we're going to, we're going to claim our Sundays back for the Lord. Right. Right. This is, um, if we don't get that right, then trying to live liturgically through the rest of the week is not going to happen. That's right. And so we need to own Sunday as belonging to the Lord, as being the day of the resurrection, the day of worship. And, and we need to own that. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned Peeper. I think probably the most approachable book for my money on that is um, Only the Lover Sings. Oh, yes. I yeah. think that's a really good one to start with. Uh, he's, it's, uh, it helps you understand what are the conditions for being able to celebrate. Yep. Right. Yep. And how do we learn to see the world again differently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that that's uh, on the art and contemplation? Um, I don't know. It's a tiny yeah. little volume. It, I mean, all of his books yeah. are really small. They're you know, leisure. The basis of, of culture is a little bit bigger than some of the other ones. But yeah, only the lover sings is is, really, is the really smallest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think. Um, yeah, and then also there's another one that they pulled out from basically some other talks that he had. It's it's called uh, a Christian man. Oh, nice. Uh, and it's basically just a fifty pages, small okay. pages, uh, and it's. It's pulling from the different virtues and what it looks like to be a man. Mm-hmm. It's also really good. I think it's only like six dollars or something like that. Nice. Well worth well worth it to put on your library. Nice. Dr. Lenoski is great. Lenoski. 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 You got I it. Almost had it. That last <laughs> use use the last take. Um it is great to have you on on the show. It, I've been really looking forward to having you on the show. Uh and oh one other thing in the book, uh location uh, vocation to virtue, you actually put in here. Uh, an order for a typical uh, day. Yeah. Weekday. Yep. Um, so if you're looking for like, hey, what is what is the day, what should a day look like? You at least give something that you can work, a framework to, to work yep. in. Yeah, just a, one example of how a family might do that. And again, this is going to have to be different from family to family, but sometimes it's nice to just have something to start with. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I appreciate it so much. Any, anything that... Uh, where can they get, get your, I guess, books? like? Yeah, Amazon you know, you can go to Amazon else. or go to Catholic University of America Press. I think... You know, if you're looking again for a first step for you as a couple, uh, you might look at um, 30 Days with the Married Saints. Give yourselves a a sort of mini retreat. It's a self-directed retreat for couples, and it's full of it's really bite-sized stuff, so like 700 words on on the Married Saints, plus some practical steps you can take and questions uh, for reflection, and some great traditional Catholic prayers that you and your spouse can use together. From 30 Days with the Married Saints is a great one to start with. Boom! Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been a blast. Yeah. Cheers.